0: Welcome to the JIMD podcast. Today's episode is the best of JIMD reports. Hi, I'm James Nurse, the social media editor at the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. In our podcast so far, we've looked at publications from the main journal, but in this episode, I wanted to draw your attention to JIMD Reports, the online-only, all-open-access companion journal. Relaunched with our new publisher Wiley at the start of 2019, JMD Reports welcome sound research findings or clinical observations, and these are made available to read, download and share immediately on publication. Every two months, a collection of papers is released as a virtual issue, and the papers published are diverse and engaging. In this episode, I've chosen five papers that were highly read, captured the Twitter hive mind or just tickled my fancy to share with you. Their authors all graciously agreed to speak with me, given just five minutes to pitch their paper and share their ideas. So without further ado, let me take you through the most read, most clicked on, and most, I can't believe they did that, but I'm glad someone did, papers from JMD reports. I'll begin with the most read paper from 2019, The Genetic and Biochemical Basis of Trimethylaminuria in an Irish Cohort. Papers on TMAU are always popular in both journals, and this one was no exception. Professor Eileen Tracy talked me through her team's work.
1: James, thank you for the invitation. So in this paper, we undertook genetic analysis of 13 Irish patients with trimethylaminuria. As you probably know, the challenge of patients presenting with trimethylaminuria, particularly mild cases, is it can be quite difficult to make the diagnosis in a clinical setting. Trimethylaminuria, the severe type, is actually quite rare. It's a rare disorder of hepatic metabolism of trimethylamine, which is associated with increased excretion of trimethylamine in urine and other body fluids and an associated severe pungent uh, body odor. So this is actually a very distressing uh, condition for those affected. It's probably only a few hundred cases of the severe type. So where does trimethylamine come from? It is a tertiary amine, which is derived mainly from the intrabacterial metabolism of precursors which are present in the diet. And trimethylamine is a bacterial metabolite of trimethylamine oxide which is a normal constituent of saltwater fish. Now the dietary derived trimethylamine is almost entirely anoxidized by enzymes known as flavin containing monooxygenases. The main liver isoform is called FMO3. There are more than 40 mutations known of the FMO3 gene and they've been identified worldwide. So just to point out that actually there are quite significant polymorphic variants in FMO3 that may be mild variants present everywhere in minor degree. And this brings us back to Garrett, where in unborn error metabolism might be an extreme example of variation present in minor degree. So there's one common polymorphism, E158K glutamine to lysine. And there's another common polymorphism, E308G glutamine to lysine. So, we did some studies in Ireland, and that 4% of the population actually carry the two polymorphisms in cis on one haplotype. And when this variant polymorphisms inherited in cis have been expressed, they actually show significant decreased TMA oxidation. These, on their own, likely do not cause much of a clinical phenotype, but when there is other exacerbating features such as a precursor overload, they can manifest or in addition, if there are known inhibitors used of FMO3 function, such as indoles, which are in Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and cabbage. Uh, There is a childhood form, which is poor metabolizer phenotype, which can present as an episodic variable odor related to precursor load. And this can actually be transient or can be involved with profound mutations of FMO or milder mutations. And then in adults, in addition to the severe type, There is milder transient urea. In particular, females have noted a transient type, which can be related to the onset of menstruation, related to hormonal effect on FMO3 function. So that's the background. You can have severe type and we can have mild type. And the clinical challenge is that if these polymorphisms are frequent in the population, there may be quite a number of people that present with carrier-like status, and we could be diagnosing really a very significant number of people with this disorder. So I suppose what we wanted to do really was to try and sort out what's the clinical utility of FMO3 gene function in differentiating between those with severe trimethylaminuria and milder cases and whether this would be good as a first-line assessment or whether we could use the standard biochemical urine uh, ratios. So we undertook genetic analysis of 13 Irish patients with trimethylaminuria of varying phenotype. Three were severe, six were moderate, and four were mild. And how do we determine the phenotype? Well, we think that there is a mild type, and then there's a moderate type, and a severe type. So we, we did an arbitrary classification of those three types. So the severe type with a conversion rate less than 60%, a moderate Conversion rate between 60 to 80% and a mild end of 80 to 90%. And again, this, this, this kind of oxidation can actually vary on a daily basis for even one individual patient. So, when we, we, we defined them biochemically, we then undertook a FMO3 gene screening and we were able to reach an FMO3 genetic diagnosis for seven of the 13 patients. So for the three severe patients, we reached a genetic diagnosis in two of a severe FMO3 mutation. And one patient was homozygous for the common polymorphism, which was interesting. And then we, we, did, we identified three uh, new mutations in our Irish cohort. And it was, it was interesting to note that in the moderate cases, that three were homozygous for the common variant haplotype. So that conclusion then for us was that the use of FMO3 gene analysis in the clinical management of this disorder may really be of most benefit for severe to moderate trimethylaminuria. So it's really important and reassuring for patients when a diagnosis is made. And secondly, that obviously the very common condition is—is is there a recurrence risk? What's the risk to my children? and so on. And obviously, if somebody is homozygous for an FMO3 mutation, it is possible to maybe identify, does the partner have common FMO3 mutations? And there can be some reassurance or genetic counselling provided on that basis. And what we wanted to state really in the paper is a note of caution that you really don't want to overdiagnose carriers or individuals with mild impaired activity if there isn't a clinical phenotype because that individuals may may actually then commence a choline-restricted or vitamin-restricted diet. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. That note of caution around genetic testing reflects a change to the previous approach and shows how important it is to get testing strategies right. Speaking of which, inherited metabolic disease research couldn't function without the scientists working to improve and develop analysis techniques. So it's perhaps no surprise to discover that the most read report in the first six months of 2020 looked at a way of doing more with less. I caught up with Dr. Kushpu Patel and Dr. William Phipps and they explained their paper Quantitative Amino Acid Analysis by Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometry Using Low-Cost derivatization and an Automated Liquid Handler.
2: Our paper essentially is a methods paper. In the study, we evaluated a mass spec-based method for measurement of amino acids in clinical samples. Amino acid measurements are one of the mainstays of metabolic disease testing and is used in the diagnosis and management of disorders involving amino acid metabolism and transport, as well as defects of the urea cycle. So what is considered the gold standard for historical reasons is ion exchange chromatography when it comes to amino acid measurements. These liquid chromatography methods rely solely on retention time for amino acid identification. These methods typically take two to three hours to analyze a single sample and are also prone to interferences from co-eluting compounds. So in this way, mass spec-based methods overcome these hurdles and offer several advantages. There are numerous mass spec methods that have been described in the literature, and one method that is gaining popularity and is the one that we evaluated in our study uses a commercially available mass tag labeling procedure. Though the runtime per sample is much shorter with this method, uh, some of the disadvantages include costs and hands-on preparation time for the sample when it's used out of this box. So to overcome some of these challenges, in our study, we modified the procedure. And uh, now I will turn it over to uh, Dr. Phipps, who will provide some more details regarding the changes we made and the details of the assay.
3: Thank you. So. Out of the box, the ATRAC method um, involves deprotonization of the sample using sulfosalicylic acid dilution and then a derivatization reaction. So the derivatization reaction itself is limiting um, and expensive, so we tested an approach involving half-reagents and using uh, reduced sample volumes. So the sample prep also is, is laborious and the sample volumes are small, so this could cause imprecision. So we additionally uh, deployed a chiogen liquid handler to semi-automate the process. For quantification, the standard HRAC method uses what's called stable isotope-coded derivatization. So this involves isotope coding within the derivatization reagent itself to help distinguish between analyte and internal standard. Um, a challenge with this approach is that the internal standard is at late in the procedure. And so from analyte to analyte, you aren't necessarily capturing differences in recovery that may occur throughout the entirety of the sample prep. So given the smaller sample volumes, then, um, we also included addition of 17 isotopically labeled amino acids at the beginning of the procedure to better normalize for variability. And this really improved accuracy for matrix-matched samples, but required a different quantification strategy, uh, which is described in the paper. The validation itself is encompassed well by the supplemental info, but a few other items I would point out. Again, the, the gain in speed here is really a function of the chromatography, so compared to the two to three hours per sample by ion exchange. The chromatography in the LCMS method um, only takes about 15 minutes uh, per sample. The HRAC method can distinguish the various leucine derivatives, which is a common question, so including the alloisoleucine isoleucine and isoleucine. However, separate quantification of these. Ladder two requires examination of their undervitized forms due to a technicality in the method. But this is enabled through readdition of undervitized sample to the quenched derivatization mixture, which is described in the, in the paper and is done for us by the liquid handler. It's one of the points that we eliminated a drying step near the end of the procedure, which was reported as unfavorable um, in the prior publication
2: based methods, we were able to adjust the throughput because we batch these samples and the liquid handler can take, I believe, up to 48 samples. It does have a better throughput compared to the ion exchange chromatography method since it takes two to three hours per sample. We're really limited in how many samples we can analyze in a day.
3: So I'm just trying to count how many, I'm trying to remember how many samples run on the... (laughs) So with these pure chromatography methods, particularly the ion exchange method, you put one sample on and then you can process another sample and put it in line. So essentially like a long queue of samples. Whereas here, actually it's a batch of, at least in this current configuration, 12 samples. But you, you prep them in a batch and then you, you basically can run them very quickly by LCMS, as opposed to kind of loading them on sample by sample and just waiting for each one to come off. So if this is quicker and it needs a smaller sample, then why isn't everyone doing it?
2: Why why aren't people doing this? The traditional gold standard is really an automated procedure, doesn't really require a lot of technical expertise on the staffing end. Um, when you move to mass spec based methods, it, it does require some specialized training and that is a hurdle for implementing these methods.
3: Well, you need to have the right instrumentation. So you have to have the LC Tandem Mass Spectrometer on hand. So these can be very expensive instruments. As we stated, it's difficult to do the sample preparation by hand. And so you would have to get a liquid handler set up, get the right programming done, and then you'd have to go through the validation. The ion exchange methods, maybe some of the other chromatography methods, these are much more established. People are used to using these. And I think often old habits die hard. Um, There's often resistance to change.
0: Thank you both for describing that in a way that I could follow. Now, the IMD field would be nothing without dietitians. And papers with a dietetic focus, especially those on PKU, are always popular. Dr. Joanna Hansen spoke with me about the Simplified Diet for Nutrition Management of Phenylketonuria, a survey of US metabolic dietitians, which was also the third most accessed paper in the first half of 2020.
4: So as many of you know, phenylketonuria is an inherited metabolic disorder that affects breaking down phenylalanine into tyrosine and medical nutrition therapy with the fee-restricted diet and formulas, the primary treatment for this disorder. And traditionally, individuals with PKU measured and tracked the phenylalanine content of the foods they ate very carefully in order not to go over their prescribed allowance. However, a simplified diet is a newer approach to PKU nutrition management that allows certain fruits, vegetables, and low-protein medical foods to be eaten without tracking at all. And These are referred to variably as free or uncounted foods. And um, while the diet is simplified in this way in terms of not having to count as many foods, it's not really liberalized in that the total amount of feed that an individual with PKU is consuming doesn't actually change. And there's no consensus on how to implement this approach in metabolic clinics, particularly in the U.S. There's a lot of variation from one clinic to another, and this can create a lot of confusion. For example, when individuals with PKU move from one clinic to another for their management or just communicating with others with PKU on social media channels. And this can also create a lot of confusion among clinicians in terms of what to recommend to their patients because there's no standard on exactly how to implement the Simplified Diet approach approach. And myself and my collaborators wanted to just get a better sense of what was happening in the U.S. and how metabolic dietitians were approaching this method in their clinics. And so we developed and sent out a survey querying different clinical practices uh, related to the simplified diet. And we got back responses from 63 metabolic dietitians all over the United States who are managing patients with PKU. And we had really great representation from all regions of the U.S., And I'll just go over a couple of the more interesting or surprising results that we identified. First of all, we found that how free or uncounted foods are defined varied widely across different clinics. So about half of the survey respondents used a threshold of less than 0.75 milligrams fee per gram of food to define a free or uncounted food. However, we also noticed that about 30% of the survey respondents used a threshold of 0.2 to 0.25 milligrams fee per gram of food to define these free or uncounted foods. And that's considerably more stringent and really only allows for a handful of foods to be included in the diet uh, without tracking or counting. So another interesting finding was that most survey respondents, about 70% reported not restricting any quantities of free or uncounted foods. And again, those were defined differently by clinic. But basically, if a food was free or uncounted, it was free and uncounted regardless of the quantity that the patient was consuming. And then a smaller segment, about 25%, restricted quantities of specific foods, most commonly foods like bananas and orange juice that in some clinics might be considered free or uncounted, but we're right on the border of having too high of a phenylalanine content to really be counted as free. Almost all survey respondents felt that the simplified diet approach could be implemented fairly early, so typically between 6 and 12 months of age. And in the United States, most infants start solid foods right around 6 months of age. So most clinicians in the US were starting this approach as the first introduction of solid foods. So they're really starting patients off with the simplified diet approach. We also found that a majority of respondents agreed or strongly agreed that patients following a simplified diet approach had decreased stress or anxiety related to food and mealtimes. And obviously, this is a subjective clinician impression, but I found this to be a really interesting response that suggests there may be real benefits to the simplified approach to PKU management. And one area that I think really needs to be explored further in future research is evaluating the patient experience with the simplified diet, comparing how the simplified diet works for these patients to more traditional counting methods. And another interesting thing to explore in future research would be to determine how many patients are really utilizing this approach. Many clinicians are implementing this approach in their clinics, but it's unclear how many patients within those clinics are choosing to adopt this simplified approach. Our conclusion was that, as expected, we found significant variability related to how the simplified diet was implemented across different U.S. metabolic centers. And this practice variability contributes to differences in the patient experience across different centers. And uh, we hope that this is a first step towards developing a consensus on how to use the simplified diet approach for PKU management.
0: Thank you. Um, Is there a risk that when you try to standardize a simplified diet, it becomes less simple?
4: There definitely is that risk for sure. However, I think at least in the United States, it seems that the lack of consistency in terms of what's considered free or uncounted has actually made the simplified diet approach less simple because there's significant variation among clinicians in terms of how this is being implemented. And so clinicians are left feeling slightly confused in terms of what's the best practice for using this method.
0: Thank you. Consistency can surely only be a good thing. Metabolic medicine is at its best when it brings together cutting edge science, dietitians, and the incredible parents who go above and beyond to make all these ideas work. The paper, Use of Skimmed Breast Milk for an Infant with a Long-Chain Fatty Acid Oxidation Disorder, a Novel Therapeutic Intervention, certainly captured interest on social media. It seems so counterintuitive to skim breast milk, but Dr. Amy Kritzer made this strange idea sound incredibly sensible when she spoke with me last month.
5: So we were fortunate enough to take care of this little baby who came to us at about three days of age. And thanks to newborn screening, we had a very good idea that we were probably going to be treating carnitine, acylcarnitine, translocase deficiency. And knowing the rarity of the disease and obviously the poor prognosis that has traditionally existed with that condition, we were really trying to see if we could do better than the traditional therapy, which was really, you know, caloric support with a MCT-based formula. And it was really a lot of the right people at the right time in the right place. And I had been fortunate enough to have used triheptanoin in the past for a child with a long chain fatty acid oxidation disorder and really Thought about using that for this baby as primary therapy. And so then faced the idea of, well, what were we going to feed this child? Knowing that all the commercially available formulas were either high in MCT, which you couldn't use in conjunction with triheptanoin, or were too high in long chain fat. And so we were kind of joking around that, you know, if only we could use breast milk except for that pesky fat. And our nutrition and NICU colleagues said, well, we can skim it for you. And that really brought up this idea of could we actually use skimmed breast milk as a primary nutritional source for this child? And that would also allow us to have flexibility to use either other MCT sources or triheptanoin. And so as we were you know, putting forward a compassionate use protocol for triheptanoin, we were also trying to gather the data that this would actually be low enough in long-chain fat that we could do it safely. And we were fortunate that one of our collaborators, uh, Kimberly Barbas, who's a lactation consultant at Boston Children's, was actually in the process of publishing her article, which had quantified the amount of long-chain fat in breast milk through various skimming methods. And so we were able to feel pretty confident that we could actually get the breast milk down to about 6 to 7% long-chain fat using a commercially available home skimmer. And so it all came together. And at a week of life, we had our compassion use protocol or medication from the company and we were ready to go. And it was really very quick. And the family was really motivated. And the mom of this baby really felt that this was something tangible she could do to actively participate in the care of her critically ill child. And, you know, many families obviously feel very helpless when their child is critically ill in the newborn period. And this seemed like something she could do. And so she was very motivated to do anything we had to do to get this baby better and to keep her well. And so we were able to have the family purchase this skimmer and were prepared to also purchase it for them if they were unable to, and then develop this very customized regimen for this child that involved the use of triheptanoin as the source of medium chain fat and then other sources for essential fatty acids. The breast milk is the primary source of her nutrition and then some other modular components to get it to the caloric intake that we want. And this child was able to discharge home um, within a month of life on this full feeding regimen. And we had maintained her on that with tweaks for weight and monitoring through the course of her first year of life. And she had repeat echocardiograms that showed that her cardiomyopathy resolved and her growth and development continued to just flourish and she was thriving on this and really was something that the family felt very happy to be able to do, given all the other wonderful benefits of breast milk with immunological benefits and given the risk in this condition of acute respiratory illnesses, this was another opportunity to potentially contribute positively to this child's health. And the child is now 15 months old and she is walking and talking. Her heart is completely normal. Her laboratory measurements have remained essentially normal in terms of her CK levels. She's had no further hospitalizations for decompensation. Her profiles remain consistent with her underlying diagnosis, but she's really done remarkably well and you know, is really credit to the family and the healthcare team for really thinking outside the box to try to do better for this kettle. And we really are quite pleased with how, how well it worked out.
0: It's an incredible story. And it's a wonderful tale of collaboration between healthcare teams and parents to achieve the best outcomes for a child. And it's, you know, you you would do it again, I take it.
5: I absolutely would. And in fact, we almost had the opportunity to, but thankfully, the child turned out to only be a carrier of the condition. But I think we learned a lot about the process. We learned a lot about the, you know, kind of meticulous management it took. And, you know, you can see in the article, we did include a tiny little picture where you might get a sense of what this family's family room or uh, dining room table looked like. Um, but it really was, I think, at the end of the day, a really wonderful way to incorporate breast milk, which obviously has a lot of benefit, a new medication. And, and I think the timing of this publication is is really great in that it, by the time it was accepted, I have to know, had received FDA approval in the US and is now commercially available.
0: That was brilliant. Unusual, but wonderful. A description that could also be applied to my final choice. Another paper that absolutely captivated social media, probably because it epitomised everything that other clinicians think of inborn errors. Curious compounds in funny places being investigated by genius scientists. The paper, Earwax, a potentially useful medium to identify inborn errors of metabolism, was just too good to ignore, and it was a delight to hear from Professor Simon Heels and Dr Stephen Kravage about how the idea arose and then evolved.
6: So this goes back about eight years, and
0: uh, Steve and I were attending a meeting up in Leeds on how we could better investigate children, actually, who sadly passed away, and what was the best way of identifying their potential biochemical cause for their disease. And it's really difficult to identify these patients post-mortem because lots of changes that happen make the interpretation of plasma samples really, really difficult. And we're on the train back and saying what a difficult job that would be. And Steve was talking about lots of ideas. Steve is a man of ideas. And he just put into the conversation, well, perhaps earwax would be a good way, perhaps a stable medium to get a readout of what's happening with patients who have potential inborn errors of metabolism. And I have to admit, I just listened to Steve and carried on. And I stopped and said, Steve, that sounds like an amazing idea. And we got our phones out and started Googling. And we found out there were lots of different types of earwax and felt this might be something that's worth pursuing. And so, Steve, your idea, over to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I
6: remember that journey well, actually. I think that was must have been around 2013, and it really emphasised what we found up till then, because we were looking at diagnoses of inherited metabolic diseases in blood spots and bowel spots, and it was very, very difficult. We both realised we had a fairly good idea and, and, and a good project on it. And, but what we embarked on, what we agreed, was that if we use inborn errors on in metabolism and look to see... If there were characteristic markers present in earwax, that would give us an indication that if they were present in these patients, they should be present in patients that may have died from an inherited disease. And looking into earwax, I remember we were, where you were, Googling earwax at the time. There are two types of earwax there's a, a dry earwax, which is rarer, and a wet earwax. Wondered whether we'd have enough. And then when we applied for permission, for ethical permission, there was a lot of hurdles. Although the idea they said was inspiring, there was some lateral thinking and some very good questions that came up in terms of could earwax be contaminated with soap or shampoo? There were other points, whether we could damage the inner membrane and how easy would it be to collect and we well, put their minds at rest that all this was possible. It was possible to collect the wax from a young baby. We'd have professional nurses, and we did have a very good nurse. And once this was agreed, and we had to propose to put forward the, the diseases we, we would look at, so we thought some of the diseases, the amino acid disorders and fatty acid oxidation defects, because a lot of the inborn errors on the energy side, in fact, most of them contribute to sudden infant death syndromes, and also some of the organic acidemias, which can impair energy supply, and we proceeded. And we must say, the organic acids were a little bit difficult, because we had another problem, because... When we look at blood, we've got volume, and so we can say that there's so much compound relative to a certain amount of volume, we can relate stuff to a marker. But we couldn't find a marker in earwax, and there must be one, and I must say we still haven't found it, and this is something that we must look for in the future. So what we try to do is try and look at a, at a comparison within the markers that we were measuring. And as for controls, again, that was difficult because it was, in fact, probably more difficult to get ethical permission uh, to have (laughs) earwax collected from normal babies rather than babies with inherited metabolic diseases. So what we did there was we would say patients with inherited diseases that didn't have a condition A were used as the controls for condition A and the ones that didn't have B were used for controls for condition B. But fortunately, that worked and that worked rather well. And coming on to what did we find on the organic acidemias, we were able to pick up carnitine in the methylmalonic patients. We didn't have propionic acid patients, we can measure it on, but I'm fairly sure that that would be a success story there. We were able to find the characteristic markers at elevated concentrations in the eyes of acidemias. Uh, the group caric aciduria type one. They were treated, they were treated quite well, and we weren't able to discriminate those, and that was rather interesting because although it's not high, it may be the metabolism of lutaric acid by the, the cells that excrete earwax might be somewhat different, so you've got to bear that in mind. The fatty acid oxidation defects we looked at are medium-chain ASAR-CoA dehydrogenase patients, are very well controlled, and we couldn't actually pick up the characteristic marker in these patients, but that may be due to control. The long-chain fatty acid defects, we had three patients and all three showed at the long-chain carnitine abnormalities, which was interesting. On the amino acid side, we picked up the urea cycle defects of succinic acid, a deficiency. We also saw elevated leucine. We didn't look at the keto acids and we haven't got to that stage, but that would be interesting because amino acids were, uh, were first looked at in earwax um, as far back as the 1970s, I believe, and the maple syrup smell was noted in the earwax, I think even before that. So we should be able, if we looked at the keto acids, I'm fairly sure we should be able to pick those up as well. Phenylketonuria and tyrosinemia which we also studied, they were very well controlled as well, and they didn't show any differences. We weren't able to go back and look at those that were uncontrolled. The profile of amino acids is quite different in earwax. It's somewhere between what one sees in urine and what one sees in plasma. And I think that's a start. It's a beginning. There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more that can be done, and there's probably a lot more that should be done, really.
0: Thank you. Any work that begins with a Google search is my kind of study. So that's your five. I hope you found them as interesting as I did. You can find all of these papers and so much more by typing JMD reports into a search engine, and every article is available for you to read and download for free. So next time you have an interesting idea to share, why not publish it with us? SSIEM members may be able to get the APC covered, and a huge number of educational institutions have open access publishing arrangements with Wiley. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we've lots of other episodes available to listen to right now on topics from PKU to mitochondrial disease to ketogenic diets, and even on how to try and make metabolic diseases seem simpler. Just search for JIMD wherever you get your podcasts. All that remains is for me to thank my guests, Eileen, Kushbu, Bill, Joanna, Amy, Simon and Stephen, and all of the authors who have submitted work to JIMD Reports. Now I'm off to send some earwax to Simon Heels. Goodbye.